How did a party in 1842 lead to today's surgery without pain? And in 1978, CBS paid $35 million to acquire a 20-year exclusive broadcast to what movie? Answers to those and other questions coming up in this edition of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia, it's the end of our ninth week together oh. <laughs> for the coronavirus. And uh, I have my first question today revolves around medicine, because medicine is a topic we're all concerned with. How long is it going to take to get more testing, and how long is it going to take to get vaccines. So tell me this, how did a party in 1842 lead to surgery without pain? Well, surgery without pain, let's see. So we're talking about anesthesia. Yeah, it used to be brandy, but now in... 18- Wasn't that kind of a party? <laughs> <laughs> they used ether, didn't they? Back? Yes, you got ether? some. You're going in the right direction here. And uh, how would that be present at a party. What were they sniffing it for recreational use? Well, actually, the first use of ether was for laughing gas. That's how they people used it. And uh, a party led to a doctor discovering the anesthetic properties. The man was 27-year-old physician Crawford Williamson Long of Jefferson, Georgia. During the party, he found some of his friends bruised themselves but felt no pain. Were they falling asleep? Well, they were just having a good time and banging into stuff and, you know, and nobody like, oh, that didn't that hurt your arm? No. Didn't that hurt your leg? No. So that gave him the idea to use ether on his patients. And the first patient was a gentleman named James Venable, and he had to have a cyst removed from his neck. So he <laughs> gave him yeah. ether, yeah. and the guy didn't feel any pain. Two years later, He used the first ether in childbirth when he administered it to his wife during the delivery of their second child. That was in 1842, but he did not publish his findings about ether until 1849, but he's the guy who was credited with it. All right, movie time, Bob. In 1978, CBS paid $35 million to show this movie for 20 years. That's a lot of years for 30 years. $35 $35 million? Yeah. That's well, probably what they would do for, you know, a half hour today. I don't know, but that's still a lot of bucks back in 78. So the question is, which movie Yeah, in what? 1978? Now, let me go back. You didn't see first-run movies on TV back in the 70s. No. You saw TV movies or old movies. So yeah. this was probably a classic film. Yeah. So I would say this was either Gone with the Wind or The Wizard of Oz. Oh, for God's sakes. No? Yes. What? The Wizard of Oz? No. Gone with the Wind? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Yeah, it was Gone with the Wind. I never saw it on TV. Actually, I never did either. No. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. You'd think it would have been on all the time. <laughs> yeah, if it was going to be done like that. Yeah. Hey, I've got some interesting stuff here I found about virtual weddings. We've got friends uh, who had uh, young ones who were going to get married, and some of them have put off their weddings. Some of them went ahead and had the weddings. Some of them went with virtual weddings, <laughs> and that's becoming a big deal right now. Mm-hmm. And a uh, Turns out uh, this one company out of uh, 
I believe it's out of Seattle, Washington, called Wedley, which is <laughs> wedding planners. Uh, Wedley. That's their business. Uh-huh. They have teamed with Zoom because they think more people are used to using Zoom uh-huh. and doing a wedding. And they're using all these different features of Zoom. I thought you might find it a little interesting okay. what they're doing. Uh-huh. You know, if you go use Zoom, there's like a waiting room. You know, there's other things to keep people out unless you, you the host, can say who you let in. Yeah. So this way you can determine who comes into your wedding. Uh-huh. You know, They will actually assign a person to monitor Zoom and use Zoom while you're doing your wedding. They'll help you with setting up multiple smartphone cameras in your apartment or wherever you're doing this so you can have a procession that's seen by multiple cameras. If you want to have musicians, they can hire virtual musicians. You need a bagpiper. We know a bagpiper. (laughs) And then they can hire all these people to help you out. See, that's called pivoting. And they even will work with your uh, ring bearers and all these other people that would have normally participated in the wedding, best man and all this stuff, and have the cameras on them turn mics on and off. And some people have had weddings where they may have only two, like a couple in an apartment and, and maybe everybody else is watching, but there may be 400 people watching the wedding. And young people are wising up and saying, hey, this is a nice way to keep the budget down. This is a way to make buco bucks. If you just want to use Zoom alone, it's very inexpensive. All you need is a a one-month subscription of their pro service, which is $14.95. And you can have uh, almost an unlimited number of people on that, but you'll have to be working all that yourself. Yeah. Uh, but if you hire a company like this, they will do it for you. They can control everything. Like yeah. if the, uh, the the wedding toast gets a little out of hand, turn off the microphone. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Joe. Uh-huh. You know? um, they said you can have raise hand features. So after the first toasts go, you can have everybody else out there waving and you can have them do an open mic toast. And then breakout rooms, they can cluster tables around breakout rooms so the bride and groom can go visit that little breakout oh, room that's cute. and talk to those six yeah. or eight people there at a time. And you can put a background of, you know, palm trees, so like you're on an island in Hawaii with for your wedding. This just shows the creativity of people. They said they've booked 80 virtual weddings in less than a month, eight to ten times increase over their normal monthly bookings. And you can organize it so, okay, everybody get up and dance to the music. And Uh then you can see all the people on your screen dancing. And Dustin Smith and Aaron Hensley, who recently got married in April, said, waking up the next morning and reading all of the comments from more than 100 people who shared our day at home made me tear up. Isn't that cool? I love it. Do you have another question? Maybe. Okay. Michelangelo. Ah, yes, we were going to do some art questions this time. Yeah, this, you know, he was on his back a lot, painting ceilings and mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, my question is, uh, how did he convey what he wanted from the grocery store to his cook? <laughs> <laughs> how did you get away from art to that? Well, how, that's just was so- How did Michelangelo order his food? You know, he had a cook. I okay. mean, this guy had, you know. Some gravitas. Did did he draw what he wanted? Yes. No kidding. Well, that's because his cook was illiterate and couldn't read. So he'd make out his grocery list. I'm sure he didn't have, you know, Piggly Wiggly on the corner, but they had something, a market. And uh, he'd draw a picture of fish and wines and fruits and breads that he wanted. So the cook uh, knew what to get. And some of these have been preserved because it is, by golly, Michelangelo. And it's art because there are pictures of everything. That's right. And you'll find it at the Uffizi uh, Museum in Florence, Oh, Italy. that's fascinating. <laughs> so this guy, he was so talented. Even his to-do lists and <laughs> want right. lists 
his food lists <laughs> are right. considered works of art. That's right. And that was Michelangelo. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got a question about somebody else. I won't tell you who it is. I'm going to ask you about the painting, okay? Okay. What famous painting was so disliked by the man who commissioned it, he refused to pay the artist for his work? Very, very famous painting. Mona Lisa. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, supposedly. She does look pretty, you know, bored. <laughs> or bemused is more like it. Now, that was done a long time ago, 1503. Yeah. It's worth hundreds of millions of dollars now. But the Remember painting, how small that painting was? Yeah, it's not very big. It is quite amazing. I've seen it twice. I saw it on our trip, and I saw it when I was a high schooler. It was in New York when we visited oh, our yeah? senior uh. trip. Yeah. Well, the painting apparently portrays the Duchess of Milan, and legend has it that Madonna Lisa's husband, Francesco del Giacondo of Florence, disliked the painting and refused to pay da Vinci for it. Ten years later, Francis I, the king of France, bought it for 492 ounces of gold, which was a princely sum equivalent to about a half a million dollars today. But it was the king of France who bought the painting, not the man who commissioned it. For, and, and that woman? Lisa Kondo. Giacondo. Yeah, that yeah. was the name of the painting. What is Mona? Mona That's is... That's a nickname for something. Oh. It's a nickname for Madonna. I was going to say Madonna. Yeah. Girls just want to have fun, right? Do you have another no, question? No, that's Cindy Lauper. <laughs> okay. In 1948, and it's not been topped yet, a purebred Belgian stallion named Brooklyn Supreme was considered and still is the heaviest horse on record. Really? How much did he weigh? The heaviest, is it a racehorse? Well, they call him a stallion. I don't know if he, I can't believe he'd be clopping uh, in a race with this kind of weight on him, but he's a big dude. I don't know what horses weigh, so I will go with like 600 pounds. Well, that's pretty far from what it is. He weighed 3,208 pounds. You're over a ton? (laughs) This horse weighed more than a ton? Yeah. I had no idea. He was six feet, six inches tall. And uh, yeah, which is 19.2 hands, in case you're wondering. It's interesting. I just was looking for some trivia items today, and I found one about when Christopher Columbus landed. They had horses on board the ship at one of his voyages. Mm -hmm. So they landed, and the horses come off the ship, and the Indians said they were the biggest dogs they'd ever seen. (laughs) They thought they were some kind of dogs because <laughs> even though horses were native to North America centuries before, by that time there were there were no horses here. So they thought they were huge dogs. Wow. All right. I have another oh. art question for you here. Okay. What did 116,000 people miss in 47 days of viewing Henri Matisse's Le Bateau? What did they miss? <laughs> 116,000 people. This is going way back to 1961 when the painting hung in, of all places, New York's Museum of Modern Art for 47 days. What did everybody who saw it miss? The fact that it was upside down. (laughs) 116,000 people passed in front of that thing before one of them noticed the painting had been hung upside down. That's very funny, and that says a lot, but I wonder if I would have caught that. I don't think so. Here's another art question of sorts. How long can a Persian rug last? You love Persian rugs. You love those those beautiful rugs from the Middle East. Well, I'd say 500 years. That's exactly right. Really? Yeah. 
Some can last as long as 500 years before they wear out. A fine-quality Persian rug contains as many as one million knots in every three square feet. Well, that's why they're so expensive. And, God, three square feet, one million knots. Wow. That's a, that's a whole lot of work. You know, uh, this is another thing about the coronavirus. Scientists are racing to design a face mask that can rip the coronavirus apart. Yeah. What can rip the coronavirus apart? Well, as we what all know, substance can Clorox. Rip? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> this this comes from a, a Fast Company article. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, what can rip coronavirus apart is copper. Copper is a metal that if almost any virus goes on it, it just it just kind of tears it apart. Is that right? Yeah. It's it's toxic to a virus, which is what I was thinking. Well, let's make everything out of copper for a while. Wouldn't yeah, that be yeah, good? Because yeah. doorknobs used to be made out of Can copper. Can you have maybe copper threads in a mask? That's what they're doing. That's what they're working on. So it uh, turns out that there are all kinds of companies working on this. Uh, some are already on the market. They're working on copper-infused antimicrobial apparel and masks. Okay. So that's possibly something that could help uh, our first-line workers. Well, this uh, is uh, sort of related, not copper, but I'm questioned about gold. Okay. Gold is the most ductile of all the chemical elements. You know what that means? That it's malleable? It's able to be drawn out into a thin wire. Okay. Okay. So how long do you think a one-ounce piece of gold can be... Uh, Stretched, basically. Stretched into a length of wire. Wow, now that's a good question. I know gold is used in gold leafing. It's used in all kinds of ways where you can basically flatten it out and spread it. Yeah. And it is very soft. Yeah, this is one ounce, like in a really good bring. <laughs> so are we talking feet or what do you, can you take? Well, you can, it can be feet, yards, or miles, Bob, whatever. Oh my God. Guess Well, uh, since you said miles, I'll go for a half a mile. 43 miles. You are kidding. <laughs> one ounce of gold. One ounce of gold can basically be stretched into... 43 miles of wire. Holy cow. That's amazing. <laughs> I thought so. Good and, Lord. Yes. You're talking about wire. You're talking about stretching out. I I saw some funny sayings uh, online today about the deal with uh, the coronavirus. And this is one about toilet paper. And a person said, I used to spin that toilet paper like I was on the wheel of fortune. Now I turn it like I'm cracking a safe. So <laughs> barely using anything. <laughs> Well, speaking of things, I'm looking ahead to the 4th of July, and I still haven't decided where we should go. The living room, or the bedroom, <laughs> the family room. Where should we go for that? Well, you know, maybe the basement. Okay, what do you got there? <laughs> All right. This publication was the first magazine in history to sell one billion copies in a single year. Wow. And this uh, is in the 70s. Publication. So this is a periodical, something that would come out on a regular basis? Regularly, Yes. 1974. I'm thinking... You were 50 years old that year. No, no, I wasn't 50 <laughs> years old that year. I'm just thinking that was about the time Life magazine kind of reached its peak, but I'll bet it was Reader's Digest. TV Guide. Oh, that's right. Yeah. TV Guide was a it, huge magazine. Yeah. Back in 1980, it had a paid circulation of 19 and a half million copies. Wow. That's uh, long since changed. Oh, I'm yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that... Uh, that was the first publication in history to sell a billion copies in a single year. That is amazing. All right, we'll be back with more amazing questions <laughs> and answers in just a moment. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. 
We're back here on the off-ramp. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marsha. And we have trivia again. This is our ninth week of doing the trivia show during uh, the lockdown here in the coronavirus. I've got some questions for you on Vincent Van Gogh. Ready? Yeah. What did he do before he became an artist? And I'll give you a hint. He worked with his brother. Oh, yeah. And what was his brother? It was uh, Van Gogh Enterprises. No. <laughs> On the go with the Van Goghs. No, it was actually the Grupal and C, C-I-E, was the name of the company in The Hague. And what was it? What did they do? They made wheels. No, they were art dealers. Oh, well. So he was, a, he was an art dealer before he became an artist, and he was not very good at it either. He came to art after he was fired at the age of 27. He did do some teaching. He tried to career as a preacher like his father, but his first attempt at missionary work in a Belgian mining village was a failure. <laughs> and after, after six months, he made so little headway that the evangelical committee that sponsored him decided, nah, this isn't good for you. He's un, <laughs> unfit for work. Yeah, he didn't get much better. So he, he, did a, he tried to teach. He tried to do all kinds of things. Eventually, he became an artist himself. The time span of his work... Most of his work occurred during how long was the period? Uh, well, I think it was 10 years. 10 like years, that. yeah. From 1880 to yeah. 1890. So he died at the age of 37. In so, an asylum. Yes. Where did he paint his last painting? In the asylum. In an asylum. Yeah. Okay. Bad news. All right. And many artists signed their work. What was unusual about Vincent van Gogh's signature? Did, well, did he do a mirror image? I'm asking you, Marcia. You're the... <laughs> You wanted the art questions, I've got art questions. It was a mirror image. He was so confident in his brand that he only signed his paintings, Vincent. Oh, that's right, of course. Yeah. I should have said that. Okay. Okay. And the painting you're talking about, the last painting that was painted in an asylum was Starry Night. Yeah. He And he voluntarily admitted himself to that asylum. That was after he sliced off his ear? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know off the top of your pretty little head, though, what year was the hottest on record in Alaska? No. Well, I know sometimes it's funny. I remember uh, many times when I used to do weather in the radio and TV, the temperature in Alaska might be warmer than where you were. Yeah, right. So that makes this a difficult question to answer for me. Yeah. But I will say it's in recorded time, so it's I'd say it's in the last 100 years, let's say 1950. Uh, yeah, it certainly is within the last 100 years. It was 2019. Oh, really? Guess when the hottest day was, what year that was. It wasn't 2019. The hottest day ever recorded in the state of Alaska was 100 degrees. Really? Yeah, and so what year was that? You don't even expect that it, with Alaska and yeah. 100 degrees Fahrenheit. They don't so, seem to go together. Yeah. Let's just go back into the last century for this one for the hell of it. Uh, 1869. Well, that's not you know that far off. It was 1915. Really? Yeah. So it uh, uh, was 100 degrees on June 27th, 1915 at Fort Yukon. And the lowest recorded temperature occurred in 1971. And that was 80 degrees below zero. Oh. Now, how's that for a variance? Oh. 80 below to 100 above. That I think, and I think living in Wisconsin, we have yeah, a heck of a range. Yeah. We're going from like 105 down to 20 below, you know? And I just found all that interesting in the context that last year was the warmest summer on record. So, But the highest and the lowest were a long time ago. At Amazing. least that 1915 one. Okay, back to Vincent. One more question on Vincent. 
Okay. To whom did he owe his great success? His brother. Now, think about that for a second. To whom did he owe his great success? Vincent van Gogh. I don't know. Well, how many paintings did he sell in his lifetime? Uh, I don't know if he sold any. One or two at the yeah, most. Yeah. He died in 1890. Yeah. His greatest success came after that. So to whom did he owe his great success? I don't know. His sister-in-law, Joe van Gogh Bonger, after Theo died in 1891, Theo's wife, his brother's wife, inherited tons of Vincent's artwork, and she spent years organizing exhibitions promoting his work Uh, across Western Europe. He was forgotten by this time. uh Uh-huh, and she made him popular. And she got his pieces in public art collections, and in 1905, thanks to her effort, the Stiedelijk Museum in Amsterdam hosted a retrospective, and now Vincent van Gogh exhibitions are blockbusters around the world. A hundred years after his death, his portrait of Dr. Gachet sold for 82.8. Five million dollars, setting a record for a single painting. After he died penniless. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. That's so common back then. But his sister-in-law is responsible for people remembering who he is. I wonder if she was just savvy and thought, if I could make these worth something, we'll have some money. Let's see, my husband died, his brother died. I got nothing here. Let's work with some of this stuff. Let's work with me Let's make myself a retirement plan. (laughs) Yeah, I think... uh, I don't mean to be uh, jaded, but yeah, that's... Oh, I think that's a that's probably what happened, don't you think? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Okay, Bob. I, I got another funny thing people are saying these days, if you want just one of those for to chuckle. Give me a chart. Well, this is just a hint for everyone listening yeah. during the coronavirus. If you're still in the shut-in, still in lockdown, still in shelter-in-place, every few days, here's a tip. Try your jeans on just to make sure they fit. Pajamas will have you believing all is well in the kingdom. <laughs> all, <laughs> all is works, well in the kingdom. Works for me. Pajamas and sweatpants will yes. have you believing things that aren't true. And the Zoom, as long as you look good from the waist up, you're fine. Yes, right. What's the problem? Yep. Okay. Ready? Yeah. This record sold 2.1 million records before the first copies went on sale. Really? Yep. Want to give me a... 2.1? what? One. 2.1 million records before the first copies went on sale. This was either, this is my thinking, Yeah. either the Beatles or Bing Crosby. All right, which one? You're right, it's one of those. I'll say the Beatles. That's right. Now, second part. <laughs> what was it? Which song? Oh, God. Oh, my God. I don't know the answer to that. I'll give you a year. Maybe that'll help. Okay. 64. Uh, 64. It wasn't yesterday. That was 65. It was like, I want to hold your hand or something it like was, that? It uh, was Can't Buy Me Love. No kidding. Yeah. yeah it sold two million copies before it, it was even on, on sale. sale. Yeah. Wow. It re, uh, the song quickly zoomed to number one, replacing another hit, She Loves You. I'll be darned. By the Beatles. So. I have a... Another uh, uh, clarification. Remember we were talking about the White House the other day, and you were talking about the the White House was burned to the ground, and I said it never actually was. One thing we didn't cover there was, why did they call it the White House? Obviously, it's white, right? (laughs) But how did it get that way? Did you know what's underneath all that white? Sandstone. Okay. Sandstone. Now, a lot of people think because of the War of 1812, they whitewashed it because it the, the walls were dark and everything from the fire, which is true. Mm-hmm. But the whitewashing actually began shortly after it was after it was built. Because it, even in 1798, when the walls were erected, the builders knew 
This is uh, sandstone, so water and weather could erode them over time. So back in those days, what they did was they used a whitewash, a lime-based liquid, to prevent water from leaking into the porous stone and freezing. So it sealed it. Huh. So the whitewashing is not because of the War of 1812. It was because they wanted to seal that. Now, here's another fact. They did finally go to paint in 1818. That's when they switched to white-leaded paint. Question. How many gallons of white paint were needed to cover the White House in 1818? Well, by golly, I'll just take a stab here. 1,200 cans, gallons. 1,200 gallons. That's a little more than twice what it took. It actually took 570 gallons, but it would take a lot more today because they've added the East Wing, the West Wing, and other additions. Well, so. maybe I was talking about half gallons. But. <laughs> you, you said you told me twelve hundred gallons. <laughs> okay, you didn't I, you, say twelve hundred cans of paint. You didn't hear me say half gallons. Oh, <laughs> okay, who chose the site for the White House? Uh, we know the first president. Wait, was it John Adams? No, it wasn't uh, George. Yes, it was. Was George, it? George Washington. Oh, it was near his house. He chose the site in the 1791. Com- the commute was much better for him. <laughs> it was just going to be called the Executive Mansion at the time. And the city was going to be called Capital City. It makes sense. And then they d- decided to change it all to Thank Washington. God his name wasn't Humperdinck or something, yeah. huh? <laughs> Humperdinck City. Humperdinck, D.C. All right, now I've got one last question. It comes around 360 degrees to where we are today with our coronavirus, uh, yes, COVID-19. In the 13th century, Pope Gregory the Ninth declared war on cats. Why did he do this? And what catastrophe do some people think this caused? The plague? Exactly. Because they ate the rats. That's right. Okay. So in the 13th century, the Pope believed cats carried the spirit of Satan, and that sparked <laughs> the notion that black cats symbolized bad luck. Satan? That's where the bad luck for black cats came from. Yeah. And in response, the Catholic Church and all of its followers initiated the extermination of cats. Yeah. Some historians believe this massacre of cats contributed to the plague because the abundance of rodents carrying the disease and the lack of a natural predator. The slaughters did stop for the most part after the death of Pope Gregory the Ninth, but not soon enough. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's the unintended consequences of a decision. Do you know what uh, was the biggest killer, the biggest plague to ever hit the world? No. Smallpox. Really? Killed more people than anything. In the 18th century, it killed, check this, 400,000 Europeans every year. Wow. In the 20th century, it killed three times as many people as world wars combined. Holy cow. And played a significant role in the fall of the Aztec and Inca empires after European sailors introduced it. So that was the killer of mankind, the The biggest one. The killer of all time. Yeah, the killer of all time of mankind. All right. Let's hope it stays in the past. All right. Well, uh, maybe we should uh, close with something. It's kind of amusing. Let's uplift a little bit here. Give me Uh, a This is a a, a classified ad I saw. It's a sign of the times, okay? Okay. Single man with toilet paper seeks woman with hand sanitizer for good, clean fun. (laughs) That's cute. That I like. And that's it for today here on The Off-Rap. I'm Bob. I'm Marsha. Bob and Marsha Smith here. We hope you join us again next time when we come back with more coronavirus trivia. More fun and games with Bob and Marsha. There we go. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.